Hello, and thank you for joining me and my special guest, Johan Eklof, today. Uh, my name is Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, and here I hope you find a little bit of inspiration to create your own dark sky places or activities or even just introducing them to your own home and environment. So if you haven't heard Johan Eklof's name before, you may do so. He's got the most beautiful, poignant work, a book called The Dark Sky Manifesto, and uh if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you do and then pass it on to everyone else you know because it's just a it's a poetic piece of work with a great sound uh, degree of research uh, into the into it um, every, into everything dark sky. Johan himself is now a bat researcher and author. And his desire to change our opinion on the night environment was something that drove this book. He realised that the negative words and association with evil or insecurity was something that uh, needs to be changed if we're going to start embracing the night environment. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. I have to admit, I was a little bit nervous. My first real... Uh, unknown guest. I hadn't met him before and uh, such a fabulous man too. So thank you, Johan, for giving up your time and enjoy our conversation. Hi. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads, or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Hello, podcasters. Thank you very much for joining me and my very, very special guest, Johan Eklöf from Sweden this evening, this morning, or wherever you are in the world. Uh, as we talk about his absolutely wonderful book, The Darkness Manifesto, and Johan, I've always thought that people could introduce themselves better than anything I could do. How did you become a doctor of, of a doctor of zoology and where did this book come from? So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Mm. Well, yeah, um, uh, the doctor thing, um, it was actually not my choice of subject from the beginning. It, I had this professor, uh, I took a few classes with him and we uh, did my master's on trilobites, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, he was a zoologist and he had this position for a PhD student and I thought, well, it, Perhaps it's easier just to apply for that and try to get a job as a biologist. It's uh -huh. very hard at the time. Uh, it's uh -huh. easier now, actually. Um, but uh, I like to work with him, so I I applied for that, that and I got it. And he was a bat scientist, so I had to start to work with bats. <laughs> but it turned out to be very, very fun. So I got hooked. Yeah. And now I've been working with bats for 25 years. And, and let's let's just go back a step. So you're in Sweden and it West Sweden. Are you able to tell us any any sort of landmarks about where where you are? Um, I'm 100 kilometers east of Gothenburg, 
So the Swe- okay. so the second uh-huh. town of Sweden. Yeah, uh, so, so close to the Norwegian border there. Yeah, and not too far up the the, the country the, the country no, it's, there. it's the southwest for... parts. Uh. And is it dark? Is it relatively dark to the rest of Sweden? Um, well, it's it's brighter than the north. Uh, um, but now we, uh, now it's getting lighter every day. So we, we're heading towards summer, yes. even though we have still plenty of snow. Actually, it's, the spring is really, really late. For some reason. So you've, yeah, it's. A, I mean, well, the seasons are completely strange, really. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question actually because I've been very lucky to spend quite a lot of time in the Arctic and and Sweden and Norway and Finland, and there's always this question around research or you know do we have enough understanding of the seasonal changes you know up there where you can have 24 hours of sunlight and 24 hours of darkness, and you compare that to the equator you know are people happier in you know is it true as our Swedish really Swedish people really more happy than than those in the uh, equator. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the, the last uh, the, there was every time there there is um, this um, ah, what do you call it when you measure happiness for different people in the world, and uh. Finland has been uh, winning this for for quite a few years now. Uh, I'm not sure why, but <laughs> but they're not known to be happy, but. Obviously, they are. Uh, I have no idea if it has something to do with the seasons or anything else, but uh, it's, it, yeah, as you say, it's very different from being up here and even, well, down south uh, compared uh, to the equator. Yeah. I, I just, I remember the, the first time I truly experienced it, and, and, and we arrived in Norway, and it was the first day that the sun had broken over the horizon. And our lodge, so I'm a, I'm a tour director and I'm very lucky to take people to go and stargaze or at look at the aurora or other, you know, astronomical events around the globe. And our lodge manager was telling us what we would be having for dinner and she saw the sun come across the horizon. It was lunchtime at the time and she just stopped mid-sentence and her eyes just sort of opened up brightly and... And she stopped and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. It's the first time I've seen the sun for six weeks. And, you know, we as Australians just have no idea of that. Even yeah. in the middle of winter, we're, 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 we're stuck with Yeah, with there sun. is something happening or, in springtime when, when the sun is actually being warm for the first time. And even though we, uh, we, we don't have as, as dark here as in North Sweden, we... Everybody just turns their head towards the sun, just stand still for a few seconds, and whatever they're doing, if they're waiting for the bus or whatever, they just turn their heads towards the sun, trying to gather as much D vitamin as they can. I don't yeah. know what it is, but <laughs> they're like sunflowers, aren't they? They, they just, just soak it up. It's, it's quite yeah. interesting to so watch. So this time of the year is uh, mm. well, it's it's a great time because you can feel the warmth for the first time in. Quite a time. So. so, how do you imagine? How does that impact bats? Is there a difference in seasonal? Cha- you know, is there a seasonal adjustment disorder for bats? Or yeah, I, I was actually uh, 
uh, watching, looking for bats under the midnight sun a few years ago uh, up in Norway. And there is only one species that, that far north, and they have uh, a very short season uh, because it's so cold during the rest of the year. So they have a couple of months to do everything to to get their to raise their pups and and to feed enough before winter. Uh, but at the same time, the, this short season has a lot of insects. I mean, being in Norway I, and here, I guess you notice how, how many mosquitoes there can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it's it's very bright so so the bats are flying close to vegetation or very high up in the sky or they try to avoid the predators as much as they can and who are the predators up there uh, it's well, birds it's predatory mm-hmm. birds um mm. so that's why the bats are actually flying in the middle of the night because no one can catch them when it's dark so dark darkness is their safety mm. so very few bats have actually adjusted to that and they, but but yeah, these they, bats have, yeah. Or, but they fly just or. you know for an hour or two around midnight when it's at the darkest. Although it's not very or. dark, it's still. Um, well, I, 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 read, really, I, I have read, read bits of your book, and I have to say that I, I was I'm just so inspired by your writing. It's just beautiful. It's so well researched and so poetic at the same time it really engages people and in fact the one of the reviews that I read was just actually from a friend who was a radio announcer with Melbourne ABC our national broadcaster and he said my wife's read it and she read it in three days and I'm I'm reading it now too it's just so engaging it's and 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 I remember one of the comments that you made in it was that you know we will never know how a bat sees the earth, and it, maybe you want to expand on that and tell us a little bit more. But but it's I, I also found it very interesting that we would never know what another human's experiencing on this earth. So how could we ever gauge yeah. what an animal? <clears throat> I mean, it's one of the old philosophical questions: How Her. can we experience something from another person's point of view? I took this course in. Uh, sensory ecology when I was a PhD student and was one of the best courses I ever took. It's and you have to dive into all the. I mean, there's an array of senses in the animal world, which we can never understand. We, I mean, we we can see this narrow wavelength span, and we can hear very few. I mean. There's so many animals experience other sounds, other parts of the of the spectrum. Uh, you can <clears throat> you can feel electricity. You can uh, the pressure senses, the magnetic senses. There are so many things. There's so many clues in the world that uh, that we don't get. Well. So we can just guess how they work. I mean, we can theoretically we can read about them and we can. Oh, this cell does that, and that mechanism is doing that. But what is happening in the head? It's it's, it's impossible to know, and that's very there, fascinating. And and particularly with light, uh, yeah. You, you, you mentioned in the in the book that I think it was bats that see the ground that that would sparkle. Yeah, I mean we 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 see the the visible 
part of the light where well, it's visible because we think it's visible. But there's so many, I mean, insects, for example, see the UV spectrum and we have the infrared spectrum for other animals. Um, and, I, I, and I really like the, the, the marine animals having, I mean, they can see colors like we have no idea that they even existed. Which, which, I, which is pretty, pretty amazing, isn't it? When we think, you know, we, we go diving underwater and we, we go five meters under and we lose 50% of any color in, in coral or anything that's underwater. And yet they're seeing these amazing array of. Yeah, we, we still think it's very beautiful, but I mean, imagine how, how looking at it with, with crayfish eyes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess the question is, is could we ever put ourselves in that position that we would, we would start adapting our own, our human environment to actually benefit natural environments to you? Do you well, think that's possible? Well, right. I don't know. I mean, there's technology for everything now. So, um, uh, at the same time, I'm not sure we we want to experience everything because we have just get an information overload. There's a reason why our senses are limited. Uh, we can't process it. But what if we were not doing it for our benefit, but for the animals' benefit? You know, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And and I know this is a huge question because I I know just even from the dark sky conferences I've been to that there are a variety of bats that you know that do very well with red light, but there are some that don't, and there are some that do better. And so we would have to yeah. create this dark sky sensitive lighting for every single animal that lived in a in a very small region perhaps you know? yeah um, i mean if we could enhance our night vision for example then we wouldn't need any street lights anymore that would be very that's beneficial a nice solution yeah so just <laughs> you know yeah. night goggle lenses sort of that's an amazingly simple suggestion you know i've, I've done maybe 40 podcasts and everyone so has talked about the technology of dimmers and motion sensors everything else but yet it, if we could just improve our own night vision yes uh, there's so yeah. many people just telling me well well it's so dark i need to see where when i'm walking my dog at night and well bring a head torch i mean uh, yes sometimes the simplest answer um is is the best isn't it yeah yeah do you see light pollution growing in scandinavia do you see much contribution or yeah, is there um, an awareness for dark sky sensitivity it's it's growing awareness when i started to write the book um and i had bat talks uh there was no one ever uh, no one ever heard of light pollution which was when when were you doing this? uh i mean let's say five years ago oh really as soon uh, as yeah. early as that ago yeah okay yeah mm. and but when I have talks today about the book or about bats, uh, I mean, most people have actually heard heard the term somewhere. Uh. So it, it's happened a lot. And a lot of municipalities, say, uh, they bring darkness into their uh, lighting plans and visions for the future, even though it's on a very small scale, but it, it's, it's growing awareness still. If we don't have any dark sky communities or anything like that here yet, 
Huh. Well, maybe we can help change that. We could help grow that. Um, and, and what sort of steps are these these communities taking? Is it just a matter of putting it into their lighting management plan or looking at what lights they're purchasing and how they're using that? Or, But it's, it's a lot about using, for example, red lights or motion detectors and timers to a larger extent than than previously. I mean, we have we've always had a lot of energy here. We we've mm, have a lot mm. of you know, uh so we've never been uh, forced to to save the energy. <laughs> so we could so when the LEDs arrived in the nineties and we started to change all the light bulbs, we, we could easily, you know, buy two lamps instead of one or three or four and it's because they were so cheap it would so we didn't need to think about the energy costs so that's why well the light pollution is growing so rapidly i was mm. looking at street what? maps for gothenburg uh, i had this project um and i was looking at one of the major parks and uh, and the satellite images were it was very striking how how small the area of darkness has become in, in, over a 10 year period it was uh, when looking at the satellite photos it was so obvious uh, and i i understand too that it's not such an issue in summer obviously because you've got such long days but in winter you have the reflection of the snow as well so it's really magnifying that impact of light pollution although yeah. I, I have a question you know how much uh, ecology is being impacted at that time of year is there is, is there much wildlife in the environment in winter um well we have you know like the roe deers mooses and birds that are staying here instead of migrating somewhere else but uh, all the insects are asleep somewhere, mm. and bats are hibernating. So the wildlife is kind of sparse at the time. So if we use some Christmas lights here, I think we will survive that. Mm. But uh, we're still, we, we we still don't know very much. Mm. Uh, I mean, when when I started to reach research the books, I I, I, I were able I was able to read most of the papers on the subject but by the end of uh, the book it i it was so much coming out already so and this was uh, over this is over a five year period that you you wrote yeah, the well, book yeah i well I'm, i started thinking about it five years ago i i wrote it in well i it came out 2020 in sweden and i started perhaps 2018 or something like that to write it uh-huh um uh-huh. But over that time, there's so many papers and so many articles and books published on the subject. Uh, and for every animal or every plant being studied, the researchers find some that they are affected somehow. Yeah. So there are there's new research coming out all the time. So I so I think even though we we say that oh it's so dead in the winter anyway we we can. You know, just shine, you know, can put lights everywhere, but if nothing uh, else, we are affected. That's right, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And and is it? I don't know how to say. Is it the 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 philosophy of sort of coming back and being co- cozy time was what I heard it all the, heard the Norwegians call it. Yeah, yeah. And and just the impact of the the cultural change of that. You know, if you've got lights up everywhere and you don't need to sort of come back inside to yourself and your activities and you know the family or whatever that that culturally has been bound together in that period, then that that's a, that's a change in itself. Yeah, it is. I mean, we have like a 24-7 society and it's global and we we expect yeah. it to be, you know, the lights be on everywhere. I mean, we, we we would like to borrow a book from the library at two o'clock if we, in the night if we feel like it. If it, it suits or, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go to the gym in the middle of the night and we just expect things to be like that. Uh. Not, Not to, to mention, mention hospitals, hospitals that need lighting, or but 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 I, I think, think the biggest, biggest one of the biggest, biggest issue is that the, certainly in Australia is the amount of light that we're using for entertainment or advertising. You know, billboards are going up everywhere yep. with LEDs in them, and um, light festivals for you know that used to be two weeks and now ten weeks, and uh-huh. and yeah, yeah, so. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ong. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. So what was your impetus? What what's what 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 made you think, okay, I've got to write a book about this? Was this does it was there something that just you know, a burning flame that came to you? Uh, sort of. Um I was doing a, a bat survey in, in southern Sweden. Uh we were going around different castles to look for bats in, in the in the gardens of the castles. It was quite uh, quite a nice job. Um, it would sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But and we realized that uh, the castles were pretty dark. They were not, uh, you know, there was no floodlights or anything on most of them uh, compared to the churches in the area. Uh, who, they they all have the floodlights on. So so then we thought, well, we we need to find out how this is affecting the bats. So we started to to do these church surveys on long-eared bats, and that's when I thought that well, I don't like this. Uh, uh. Been working with bats for twenty years at the time, been out in the dark for quite a while, and it felt like. We're losing something if if we do this all the time. So maybe I should write a book about a positive book about dark darkness. Because uh-huh. uh-huh. language-wise, darkness is all bad. It is. Uh-huh. Uh, and well, it I turned out writing about the negative impact on light and not as much as the positive aspects of darkness. But I think I got that as well. So. But that was the main idea, to, to turn it around a little bit and bring the, the positive out of the darkness. I think you probably have succeeded in that because I think that's the difference in the book, actually. that you know, There's a couple of books out there that talk about the benefits of darkness and, and you know what we're losing and what if your children never see the stars and all these sorts of huh. things. But I think, as I said at the beginning, there's this element of... of 
storytelling, but with this view of hope. I mean, even right at the very beginning where you talk about the mimosa plant and then Ross Bosch Hall and Young discovering the gene for, you know, circadian rhythms and and, and I, I guess he's, uh, there's this impetus or this flow in the book for me that actually makes me think, okay, so what's going to happen next? How can we get through this? What what are we going to learn next, I guess, and rather than being negative? So, yes, well done. I think, And I think that's what's made the book so popular. Yeah, I, I mean, if it's amazing how, how it's spreading. I mean, I, I was happy when it was translated into English. It was, uh, but now it's, I think, 10 languages or something like that. It's... Yeah. It's just weird. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably never what you thought you would be. You'd never be doing interviews with someone in Australia about the book that you wrote. No, I was just writing oh. a book about darkness. I thought, well, it's, it's a fun idea. And yeah. this needs to be said. I mean, I wanted to put the light pollution on the agenda in Sweden to start with. But, I mean... So, and... In all the little anecdotes and stories that you tell, was is there one that's particularly favoured by you? Do you have, you know, when you when you started to research, did you think, wow, this is amazing? Yeah. Uh, well, it's hard to tell, but I was a little bit surprised about how how much the marine life is affected. So that was nothing that I thought about before. So there are so many. I mean, on the coral reefs, for example, or the even in the deep sea when the, the plankton and everything is migrating upwards in the night. I have never thought about these things, that they are so affected by light. Well, I guess in some ways, and this is just a, a thought that's come to my mind, animals on land may have seen fire, whereas... They marine animals wouldn't have seen that, so the only artificial light at night would have been the moon, I guess. Yeah. Um, source of light at night would have been the moon. So yes, they're probably very much more impacted by it. Um, and I know the, that one of my guests that I've spoken with before, Dr. Emily Fobert, she had studied the clownfish and noticed that as soon as you put lights over the top of them, they, they may spoil their eggs, but they don't hatch. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I read about yeah. her research. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I that think was I, one of the I most... think I even contacted her at one point when I was writing, yeah. Ah, well, she's a, she's a great source of knowledge on this, and then I think her, her story was similarly of interest, you know, really, because it was Nemo, the clownfish, yeah. everybody clicked on that story. So, yeah. So um, it says in your, your Penguin blurb that this is the first book about science and the natural history of darkness. Does that mean that there's a sequel ready to come? I'm, I'm doing research on, um, on a follow-up, but I'm, I think I will be moving into the more natural lights of the moonlight, for example. But ah, I haven't really okay. landed you know, where, where to. I was supposed yeah, to do this I'll... for a, a long time ago, but it <laughs> was so much with this, with all the translations and everything. And so, well, it's, I can take that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you were you were popular. You you created a run for your own back in a way, didn't you? Um, I, well, even aurora. Would animals and insects be impacted by aurora? 
I don't know. Fair. Actually. Uh, it's a good question. Hmm. I mean, uh, it, whilst it is a source of light to our eyes, it's also, it's it's that whole magnetic field thing too, isn't it? That maybe yeah. birds and insects would be more impacted by it. So. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's, yeah, perhaps, I guess there are animals seeing the aurora in, in a different way also. Yeah. Uh. I mean, uh-huh. if if you're out looking for the aurora, which I've been doing quite a lot this winter because we have a lot of sun activity, uh, but I'm a little bit too far south. Um, uh-huh. But my camera can capture the light, uh, whereas I can't. Uh-huh. So I took a took a few photos of the aurora, but I didn't really see much of it myself. And that sort of comes back to the point that you made about wouldn't it be wonderful if our night vision was better? Yeah, pick up uh, colours and things at night. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There are so many things. Yeah. I I guess we would see things that we perhaps don't want to see. It's like if we have a better hearing, if we were um, hearing bats all the time. I mean, their their echolocation could be one hundred and thirty decibels. I we would like to hear that. We would be, right. Is it yeah. Ah, oh, well, <laughs> they're I very loud. It's very uh, short range, though, but... Uh, um, yeah, that that's amazing. Um, is there a cultural connection to the night that, that you see is particular to Sweden? Um, like, are there, uh, yeah, there traverse well, nation stories or anything... Besides those around the aurora, yeah. I mean, if you if you go up the north to Lapland, uh, to to Sápmiya, the Sami country, I I think they have they have a lot of stories about uh, aurora, for example. Uh, um, and if you go back, I mean, the old stories of the Viking era, whatever. I mean, there are a lot uh, of connection with this with. This, Stars, but it's like it's like everywhere. I mean, it's a, part, it's a huge part of the the folklore. Uh, um, but I mean, as Scandinavia is quite far north, and we have all these long winters, perhaps the night is a bit. Uh, uh, we, we love it and hate it. That's interesting, and 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 why do you love it? It's. It's relaxing somehow. It takes off the pressure of the need to do things. Uh, you can't do that much. I mean, historically, anyway. Uh, so I think we we can you know just sit down and well, this is it. Uh, we can we can relax. Nobody cares. I mean, I think that's one thing. And you take away all. Uh, a lot of impressions, which is also could be a thing. It's easier to I, relax. I've, yeah, I've I've often thought that there's a because I've seen people stand together, complete strangers in the dark, and because they can't see each other so much, I don't know. The conversation's different. They seem to and. 
you know, they'll they'll relax more. They'll not worry about what they they look like. They'll just listen to the environment. They'll listen to one another better because they're not distracted yeah. by. It's like by, these uh, darkness mm. restaurants. Okay. Mm. Uh, I are... went to uh, a darkness restaurant in, in Stockholm and it was pitch dark. I mean, you couldn't see a thing. Uh -huh. You had no idea what you were eating. And and the and... owner was playing <laughs> playing the guitar and you know it was oh really yeah, wow. yeah. and they mm -hmm. also have a podcast so they interview their guests in in darkness mm -hmm. um, I love it yeah, yeah that was fascinating it's uh, 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 and were people more relaxed were people more aware of what they were eating and uh, yeah well not uh, at first I think it uh, takes a while before you get used to that but after a while yeah. Her. So you mentioned you love the dark, but you also mentioned there's a hate relationship there. So what's the hate around it? I think it has to do with the long winters and right. that it's dark. And I mean, in the north, it's really dark, but at the same time, you have a lot of snow and perhaps the aurora sometimes. and. In the south, it's more like it's a very long autumn. Uh, At least uh -huh. on the west coast, and so you, so you miss the sun, as what we were talking about when we started. Uh, you know, you just stands like frozen for a few seconds, <laughs> looking at the sky when you see the sun in the spring. So we we get we grow a little bit tired of the darkness. But uh, at the same time, we I mean, who doesn't love to sit by a bonfire looking at the stars and you know not having uh, electrical lights shining on you all the time and if uh, you go to a restaurant I mean if you want to have a fancy dinner you, you would like to have a bright place you, you, you want to have a cozy place with candlelights actually I think that's one thing that that Scandinavia does very well the, the, the ambient lighting for restaurants and um yeah, it, environments where you socialize are generally very warm. You know, there's none of the harsh white lights that have crept into Sydney, that's for sure, and certainly certain certain places around Australia. I think that's part of the, the Asian connection because there is a cultural connection to to blue light in blue and green lights and, and bright white lights in Asia. And we have, a you know, that, that cultural connection is coming through here. Yeah. So... Uh, but it, yes, it, it is lovely to sit in a restaurant and just have a candlelit table on and warm, com comfy lights above you. Mm. Yeah. And it, so, I mean, light designers uh, today are working a lot with that, and uh, and also to bring that out from restaurants and indoor lighting to to use it outdoors as well. Oh. Uh, I would say Scandinavia is one of the leading country, well, leading areas. Sweden, there's a lot of Swedish designers uh, in working in Melbourne, Victoria, in oh, Australia, yes. doing yeah. So, it, it it's good to see. So, what what do you aspire? What do you hope happens in in Sweden with with light pollution and darkness? And what do you what's your little legacy that you'd like to leave the world besides the book? Um, I would like to see. A uh, dark sky sanctuary or a park uh, or something like that here. Um, but I also like to see that the 
some sort of legislation, some uh, some laws or anything that that tells you that if you want to put up a billboard or a new lighting system, you need to do the proper surveys. You need to well, I, I, what you would do if you if if you're building a road or a house, you, you need to do all these different surveys. Uh, uh. So that's acknowledge light pollution as a true pollution. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I know, we, we, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually have light listed as a pollutant around the world? And I think countries like England are getting close. You know, they're having inquiries as to the impacts of light and noise pollution on, yeah. on the natural uh, environment. We, France is getting there, Germany is getting there, but it's a little bit slow, but it uh, started to... To move a bit, and we we won't stop turning all the lights on. I mean, I think the light pollution will continue to grow, but I think also that we have reached a point where perhaps all these LEDs are not as great anymore. I mean, we uh, we we've seen it, done it, and now we can do something else. Yes, I think you're right. And, and my husband, who's an astronomer and has done some work with the Copulus, the Committee of Peaceful Use of Outer Space, uh, and the, the the mega constellations, uh, wrote a paper about five years ago saying he thought that we would come to a, a period where our love for LEDs and our awareness of them would actually neutralise and we would actually start coming into an era where we, we would be actually naturally reducing light pollution because we would be A, aware, and B, the technologies would, would you know, grow yeah. and expand. Yeah, it's like there. with a lot of new technology, you, you use it a bit too much in the beginning and then you realise, well, it's, well it was, wasn't that good. I mean, and then turns back a bit. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So just to f- to wrap up, I, I always ask my guests what their their favorite dark sky experience has been. Have you got one? Have you got a moment that just stands out above all others? Um, I yeah, I think I, I think well, it, it's hard because uh, my darkness experience are often you know the everyday experience. I try to get a little bit of darkness walking the dog uh-huh. in the night or when I'm working with baths but I have this episode in the book where I I took my family out in a rowboat to watch the shooting stars oh, in, wow. in August uh, when when the summer nights are getting dark we just you know packed the, the, the small boat with a lot of you know, pillows and duvets and you know, so it was oh, really it comfortable. Oh, it sounds so wonderful, yeah. Yeah, so we just row out a bit on the lake and we just took up the oars and we just lay down and looked at the shooting stars. Oh, wow. That was, yeah. And and you said the family, is that, have you got children or? Yeah, yeah. it was a few years ago, yeah. so oh. I don't think we will all fit in the boat now. <laughs> <laughs> But what a fabulous memory for your children to have. Yeah, I'm sure I, yeah, that's I mean, engaged think, them. Yeah. 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 I think that's that's probably one of the most outstanding stories I've heard, actually. That, that I'm quite jealous. That's lonely. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it wasn't the best of night skies. It wasn't, you know, it was a number one on the bottle scale or something like that. But it's 
it's still a great nice guy and a lot of shooting stars and you know, with the family and you had the boat just floating around the water was still I mean you could almost you could see the stars in the water so it was like sure. you know, flying uh, almost very well. uh, and it's one of those memories that I can feel because it impacts so many of your senses you know you've seen it you've felt it you you've heard it on the water um, and you've you've connected with people at the same time and it, that's what actually creates the strongest memories is when more number of senses are involved the yeah. stronger the, the memory wonderful well, all I can say, and I'm going to finish it there because I think that's just a beautiful memory, unless you've got anything else you'd like to add, Johan, um, thank you so much for writing that this magical book. I'm going to be sharing it with everybody, asking them to read it, and uh, and actually even the Audible. The, the guy who reads the English version of the Audible book has just got a lovely voice and beautiful storytelling. So thank you. It's a beautiful work. It's definitely going to leave a legacy, and I hope that Sweden can have a dark sky reserve sometime very soon. Thank you. Well, thank you.